0: Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So this week, we uh, Friday, I don't know how many people are doing it, but I've met a few anyway. Um... But participating in this 7-Eleven Daniel fast. Uh, it was interesting Friday when I started. It probably wasn't three o'clock in the afternoon that I was ready to bail. I was so done. Um, I was number one, I felt like it was way harder than I did this the last time. Um, and and like I just I was, I was like by by Friday afternoon, evening, I was ready to come up here and just say. Hey everyone. I made a horrible mistake <laughs> terrible idea to invite anyone into this and I am out <laughs> um, and, and then and then yesterday uh, made the incredibly great choice to go to Costco and uh, saw someone else from church there and um, she had her, her cart full of, uh, got the, uh, there's like buy one, get one free of uh, chicken, breaded chicken fingers. Um, I was like, yeah, those are really good. She goes, yeah, but not for now. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you make poor decisions too. Um, I did get some uh, burnt ends for future me, uh, but, but I was just kind of like, this is, why is this so hard? Like I was, it was just really, really, really rough. And, and I think one of the things that God just like, Said pretty clearly is um, your flesh is way stronger than you think it is, <laughs> and and it is amazing to me that a slight adjustment in my diet with a purpose for seeking Jesus and recognizing Him as worthy that my flesh would be so unruly and unwilling. Um, like I, I think part of it is I thought I was doing better than I was. And, and so as, as I've been kind of the last couple days um, realizing how, how important it is for us to be seeking God, not just with our lips, not just with some of our activity, but with our whole body regularly. I find a one-day... Full fast, really not that difficult. But man, when I have to adjust my life and my schedule over the period of days, like, is Jesus really worth that much? He is. And, and so man, I, I am anticipating um, when God's people surrender themselves, and actually deny themselves and take up their cross. And this cross, just wanna let you know, isn't that heavy. (laughs) When they do that, God responds. Uh, So I am anticipating um, whatever God's going to do, whatever he has planned, uh, as we journey together. Uh, This morning, we're gonna continue on into Acts chapter 14, and uh, I found this to be a, Fascinating passage um, with a few things that stuck out to me that I want to share this morning. Um, but first, I want to tell you a story. Um, it's a story that comes out of Greek mythology. And um, there's one day that Zeus was sitting, you know, kind of in, on his throne and as, as the king of the gods. And he, he looked down and he was like, because Zeus, one of his things is he is uh, the protector of travelers. And um, I don't know how that works because he's kind of a jerk, but um, Zeus was looking down and he was seeing humans and he was like, you know what? I wanna go and check on how travelers feel. And so he decided he was gonna go to this one particular city and he was going to kind of... be take on human form and kind of look a little bit ragged, and he was going to go, and he was going to go and knock on doors and see how he was treated by the people in the city. And so another god, Hermes, who's, who's basically the messenger of the gods, who's also a god, who would take word to other gods or other people uh, on behalf of Zeus or other gods. And so Hermes is the kind of messenger of, of the gods, and so Hermes decided to go with Zeus, and so they went together, and so they came down off of their, their high place, and they, they took human form and they went to the city and they started knocking on doors they knocked on doors of of houses that were uh, it had very wealthy, uh, these big houses, these wealthy people, and they went to these tiny houses with people who were not wealthy at all. And so they went through this town, and what was interesting, what was kind of beginning to enrage Zeus was that at no point did anyone invite them in or treat them hospitably. And so Zeus's anger was burning as they were going through this this city and they were leaving the city after they visited every single house in the city. They were going up this hill and they saw this little tiny shack and and they walked up up to the shack and uh, they knocked on the door. And it was interesting because this elderly couple, Bacchus and Philemon answered the door they didn't have much of anything. They didn't have very much wine. They didn't have very much food. But they invited Zeus and Hermes in, seeing them as weary travelers. And, and so as they were, as Zeus and uh, Hermes were there, um, Philemon and Bacchus, they decided that they would try and scrounge a meal together. And they had this duck. And so Philemon chased this duck all over the house in the backyard and couldn't catch it until finally the duck landed in Zeus's lap. And, and the interesting thing was this wasn't necessarily a food item in their house. It was more of a pet that this couple had. But when the duck jumped into Zeus's lap, uh, Zeus revealed himself. And so he and Hermes revealed that they were the gods, Zeus and Hermes, to this couple. And, and the couple was afraid and, and shocked and, and amazed. And, and Zeus told them that he and Hermes had traveled through all of the city and no one had been hospitable to them. And he said, he's he's going to punish everyone in the city except them. And he's going to reward them because of their hospitality. And this little shack that that they lived in uh, sat on a little hill. And when they walked to the front door and looked out the door, which normally they could see the city, all they saw was water. And Zeus had flooded the city and drowned everyone who lived there. Great story, right? So be hospitable. What? <laughs> there you go. Uh, this is more Greek mythology, but um, but yeah. Uh, so so it's interesting. And and here's here's what's so put a pin in that, and I'm going to come back to that story in a minute because I think it'll make more sense in a in a minute. But um, context is really helpful to understand why people do or react in different ways to, to, to what they encounter. Um, context is really important for us to understand in how to reach people for Jesus no matter where you are. We, we, it's, it seems obvious, and we talk about this in the context of like going to, counter cross, uh, cross-cultural areas where, where we need to understand their culture in order to represent Jesus in a way that they're gonna understand and they're going to be able to, we're not gonna create unnecessary hurdles. But context is also really important with our neighbors, even here in Modesto. Because there are people with experiences and beliefs and thoughts that you may be saying something about Jesus and they're going to go a completely different way with it. And so it's important to know their stories, it's important to know uh, their beliefs, it's important to know their experiences. And, and, and it, so we wanna be careful that even here in our own neighborhoods, we don't wanna assume that we know why people do or react the way they do to things. Jesus is always king, but how we help others to recognize him as king will hinge on what people know and how we understand those people. And I think here in Acts 14, as Paul and Barnabas continue their, this journey uh, in, into what's now Turkey today, as they continue this journey, I think Today's passage really really shows us a context where they understand the the culture and they're able to adapt the core message of the gospel of Jesus so that these people can understand and hear the word of the Lord. So I'm gonna read Acts chapter 14. We'll start in verse one. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, Paul and Barnabas. And spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands." But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was a cripple from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds." But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out in the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. There's three things that I want to just point out, I think, of significant note in this text. And the first thing is the flow of ministry that we keep seeing over and over with Barnabas and Paul as they go places. Um, It says says in in the text, it says that they spoke in the synagogue that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. A great number. So we see this over and over again in the cities that they go to, that, that there's an initial super good response to the proclamation of the gospel. But then we see pushback. Typically, what we see in their journey, we see it from the unbelieving Jews in the message that they bring. And so it says that there's these unbelieving Jews that stirred up Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they stir up these people, which is interesting because they ally with the Gentiles, which isn't necessarily a typical thing that you would see them doing. But I guess in this context, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so we can work together to get rid of this problem that is facing us. And so, so you've got this initial super good response. You've got pushback that comes against it. But then, then look at what it says, and this is characteristic of what they do. It says, once they poison their minds against the brothers, so they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They, they responded with perseverance. They didn't just give up and go because they, they had a hard time or there was some, some suffering or that there was a problem with the way that people were treating them, that they were unwelcome, and, and those kinds of things. They, they kept going, they persevered. And it says that not only as they persevered, but their ministry was confirmed by signs and miracles. It says that God came in and he he confirmed and authenticated their ministry with signs and miracles that God was doing through them. And then it says that they came up with this plot to stone them. And when their life was actually in danger, they continued on to another city. But it says that they continued to preach the gospel. And this isn't all in like the course of a week or two. It says that they, they persevered there for a, a long time. And they, they faced that kind of persecution and that pushback toward the gospel and the, the treatment that they were getting for a long time. And then eventually when it was, their life was at stake, they moved, the spirit moved them on to the next city. I think it's easy to see ourselves in the place of Paul and Barnabas not necessarily in the place of the Jewish leaders who are stirring things up against them. I think it's easy to look at the the Jews in this text who are coming against Barnabas and Paul and say that they're the villains, they're the bad guys, and we villainize them because of the way they're acting. And that feels really comfortable that I wouldn't identify with that. But here's something to think about if you put yourself in their shoes Paul and Barnabas are from the perspective of many faithful Jews who have followed Yahweh they do their best to hold up the law of Moses and in comes these guys who are talking they're giving a different message now, I mean, we can argue and say that, well, they had all of the prophecies, but, but we miss things every day, don't we? And, and, so, and so they're bringing this message. So Paul and Barnabas, and from the perspective of these faithful Jews, Paul and Barnabas are insurgents who are drawing the people of God into sinking sand. That's what's happening. They are concerned and afraid that these two guys are drawing the people of God away from God, to something that's a different faith or not a faith at all. See, when they are trapped in fear of loss or when we are trapped in the fear of loss, and when I think about them, they, they had to be thinking about their loss of identity as Jews, their loss of their story, it is so rich that they've, they've kept on to lose that story for a different story that, that rewrites their story or even a loss of faith because these Jews who are going over with, with Paul and Barnabas or these Gentiles who are coming into this faith is not the faith of their fathers. And, and so when we are threatened with the fear of loss, the only solution is to destroy the insurgent threats. And that's what they did. They needed to destroy these insurgent threats that were threatening their lives. And so the enemies of Paul and Barnabas would bring death to those who only wanted to announce life. Now that explanation of these Jews, does that sound a little bit more like us? when we are faced with a fear of loss of anything, even sometimes when it's Jesus himself saying, I need to take this away from you. Our natural instinct, my flesh that I've realized this week is much stronger than I thought it was, responds by saying, do not take this from me. You are... And I don't identify him as Jesus, but it's easy to be like, Jesus, you are an insurgent threat in this moment, and you cannot take this from me, and we need to walk away from this. I know that sounds severe, but do we do that sometimes? Like, I don't know about you, but I've been very aware of the tenacity of my flesh, I mean I mean even even sometimes when the structure or the tradition or the form of what we've experienced as church is threatened we do the same thing but maybe it's that God's trying to tell us something that we haven't been able to hear kind of like those Jews didn't see the prophecies in the old testament that this Jesus Paul and Barnabas are talking about is the Messiah The second thing that I wanna kind of point out in this is the confirmation of their ministry. And we see this throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament that that oftentimes God will accompany his word with signs and miracles to authenticate the presence and the power of the one true God. We see this here. It says that as they were getting pushed back, that that God was blessing them in, in, in having the grace upon them as they they proclaimed the word and it says that they, God in, empowered them to do signs and miracles through their hands. And it's interesting because we don't really experience that much today. In fact, like I grew up in a, in a context, kind of a tribe of Christianity that, that said that those things don't happen anymore, that at some point God stopped doing those things. Um, it's interesting might it be possible that we, in our, sometimes in our culture, in our tribe, see this less because we are less about the presence and power of God and more about our own relevant skills and abilities and intelligence. Like, for example, like, maybe I can be really persuasive and motivate someone to do something. But I can't perform signs and miracles, so I'm gonna just kind of put those to the side And I'm gonna function where maybe I get more attention. Or maybe I'm more affirmed in who I am and my gifts and my abilities versus my dependence on God alone or my dependence on the Holy Spirit to work through me and do things in my weakness that I can't do. I think it's kind of almost interesting that the, the things that Sometimes we say God doesn't do anymore, are the things that only God can do. <laughs> How come teaching hasn't ceased? <laughs> well, it's because I can learn to teach. <laughs> and, so, and so I think one of the things, and I'm not saying that, that miracles and signs come with every, every point that God is present but we need to think about our limiting the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do and where he wants to do because if we go out of our narrow context of what what we've grown up in and and do a bit of traveling, we'll see that God still does, does those things. Unquestionably. I think too often we tend to confuse our presence with the presence of God. I think we, we've got to just take like a little tiny step back and say, okay, <laughs> my presence doesn't matter. It's whether or not the presence of God is here, whether or not God is with us, with me. And we know that he is everywhere, but am I allowing my presence to shrink and God's presence to grow? Like the, the call of John the Baptist, I must decrease so he, he must increase. And, and the last thing that I want to kind of pull out to think about in this, in this text is uh, Barnabas and Paul in their reaction to what happens in Lystra. If you're really paying attention, maybe you figured this out, but that Greek myth about Zeus and Hermes was actually the city. That's where the myth came from. That's where the legend was. There were sister cities there, and those were the cities that in the legend, Greek mythology, that Zeus and Hermes came down to that city, that very city that Paul and Barnabas were in, and they flooded the whole place because there was no hospitality. Now, connect that with the local people, and Barnabas and Paul coming into town, some strangers coming into town, speaking... Paul speaking words from God. Barnabas is there who, who, I don't know, he must be impressive to some degree. And so, so they're there. And then all of a sudden there's this guy that everybody knows is crippled from birth. And Paul looks at him and he sees and he looks, he stares him down and he's like, Corey, get up and walk. And I mean, I know Corey can walk, but, um, but but he's like, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks and everybody, everyone in town is familiar with a legend. So what are you thinking if you're there? We need to treat these guys really well or we're all gonna die, right? Because that's what you've grown up with. That's what you've been taught is that there was a time that Zeus and Hermes came in in human form and people rejected them. So what do the people in this city do? They offer sacrifices to them. They worship them. And they even say that these are the gods come down to us, to our city. And, and Paul, because he's speaking is Hermes and Barnabas must be Zeus. And so they're coming back again and we're in trouble if we're not hospitable and we're not, we're not treating them really well. Isn't it interesting to learn that and, and realize that's how they were interpreting things and that's why they did what they did because they didn't want to die. <laughs> what, if this, what if this legend, what if this myth was true about Zeus and Hermes, that it's gonna happen again and it's not gonna to happen to us? And so here, Barnabas and Paul come in and preach the word of God pointing to Jesus. And, and, and they, they do this miraculous sign of healing this guy who's crippled. And the people interpret it that it's the Greek gods, or maybe they were maybe at that point they were thinking about the Roman gods, maybe Jupiter and Mercury, but 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 they were thinking these gods have come down and that's who we're going to worship. Did Paul and Barnabas misrepresent or mis, miscommunicate the gospel? No. But there was a cultural context in which these people saw things through. And so Paul and Barnabas, immediately understanding what's going on, I don't know, maybe they were familiar with the legend, maybe they heard it, but but immediately when these people were worshiping and celebrating and and basically offering offerings to them, they immediately, it says they tore their clothes, and they said, we are not gods, we are just men like God. You, the same nature, we are no different; we have no special power. What you see happening is actually the power of Christ in us, not the power of anything else there 's one God, one God above all gods and I, and I love how, like earlier in chapter thirteen, Paul preaches this message in the synagogue, and his his message is going through the history of the, of, of the, 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 israel 's history and basically bringing it all the way to the point of saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies and Jesus is the Messiah and he traces all of that stuff up to Jesus in the synagogue because those people understood the history of Israel and he just had to have them connect the dots. These people didn't necessarily who are offering them these offerings and worshiping them. So Paul goes a different way. He adapts his message that he preached in the synagogue and he preaches it to their context and listen to what he preaches, listen to what he says. He says, "He says, uh, turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then he says, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness the opposite of what Zeus does. And, and, and so they, they immediately reject the notion of being special, gods or celebrities in no uncertain terms, and they, they adapt the message to the cultural context in that city. And here's the thing that strikes me that is I would say, and maybe you can figure this out for yourself, but I would say is a really significant issue that the church shares with our broader culture. And that is that idea of celebrity culture. Um, Here, Paul and Barnabas walk into a city and immediately they are celebrities because of who they think they are. And what did Paul and Barnabas do with that celebrity move in the city? they outright rejected it. They said, no, we will have none of that. We are not special. Everything to Jesus, we are nothing special. We are just like you. And so like you see, we see in culture, we see, I mean, celebrity and gods maybe could be interchangeable in today's world. Like um, basketball gods, celebrities, artists, musicians. And, and and so we see that in culture, but we also see that in the church. Like how many times have we excused someone, maybe a pastor or an artist or a Christian athlete and said, well, yeah, I know, I know that, that they seem to be really arrogant and prideful, but they're saying the right things and they have solid theology, and so that's okay. We can still celebrate them. And before you know it, they've done irreparable damage to the name of Christ. Like, like a, a, a preacher and teacher who is celebrated and kind of a celebrity in in church circles, and then you find out he basically was participating in the sex trade. Not a hypothetical. And And I think one of the things that we've got to recognize, especially as Paul and Barnabas react to this, Celebration, this celebrity idea of who they are that they outright reject and they say, no, 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 it is the way of humility. And I think part of the problem is, is not just those individuals. It's just not a pastor who, who gets too caught up on his own ability to move people. It's not an artist getting too caught up in the lyrics that they write. It's not an author whose book sells so much. It's that they begin to think and accept the accolades of man rather than see themselves as a servant, a humble servant of the one true living God. And so you've got kind of one side of the coin, individuals who pursue that fame and celebrity and don't walk in humility. But then the flip side of that is the rest of us who are a stumbling block to their humility because we put them up on pedestals, we we elevate them, and we even defend them in moments that probably we should be confronting them. So it's not just a problem that's, it's not just my problem, it's all of our problems. And so I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that we cannot truly be faithful to Jesus, without the foundation of our lives and our ministries being humility. Like that's what I would say, Paul and Barnabas, they walk into this place, they accept suffering, they accept persecution, they persevere, and when they are celebrated, they say, nope, not to us. <laughs> not to us, but to God be all the glory. So a couple things that I, that I, that I wanna kick out to you as maybe you reflect and evaluate your own life and humility. And, and you can disagree, and that's okay. But make sure you have solid reasons as to why you disagree. <laughs> Not just because your flesh was stronger than you thought it was. First thing is this um, as as we see in Scripture that in their very nature, pride. And faith are irreconcilably at odds. We learn that faith and humility are at their root one thing, and that we can never have more true faith than we have more than we have true humility. Let me say that again: You cannot have more f- true faith than you have true humility. I think it's similar to what the Apostle John says about loving God. He's, he's, I mean, he says, you know, if you say you love God and you don't love others, you don't love God. If you say you have faith, and James says, if you say you have faith but have no works, your faith is dead. If you say you have faith but have no humility, I think your faith is dead. And so we have to, like, is humility a really important thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Second thing is this. I think it's easy to think that we humble ourselves before God, but here's the kicker, kicker, here's the catch. Our humility towards others is the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. Yeah, I heard someone say, ouch, yes. (laughs) Excellent response, Mike. (laughs) Because yeah, it goes back to what John said. If you say you love God and don't love your brother, you're a liar. If, if I say I've humbled myself before God and I am not humble before you all and the world outside that I disagree with and doesn't even carry the values of Jesus, if I am not humble in those contexts, there is a big question mark as to whether or not I have humility. The only way that you can see that, that I'm humble before God is how I am humble before you. It's in our relationships with one another and our treatment of each other that that humility can be seen. Our humility before God has little to no value to prepare us to stand before Christ if we don't walk in humility with each other. And so I guess one of the questions is, okay, so how do I overcome pride? Because that's the problem. And I think the answer is simple but really hard. I think there's two things that are necessary. Number one, do what God says to do. Humble yourself. Like, do that. Humble yourself. Second thing is, is trust God to do what he says he will do. What does it say in scripture when it says, humble yourself and what? He will exalt you. See, we, we kind of feel like the sure thing is that I'm gonna exalt myself because I need to watch out for me. But what God says is, no, humble yourself and I will take care of those things. Your job is to humble yourself. I'll do the exalting. And, and so we, we've gotta humble ourselves and trust God to give us what we need and to preserve us and to take care of us. We persevere in humility. So we're gonna take communion together in a, in a minute here, but um, I think one of the things, we've, we've even just, even singing this morning, we've sung about the holiness of God. I think that the response to God's holiness, if you even begin to understand it, is humility. If you stand before a holy God, there is no other pathway than humility in that moment. And, and, I, and I think what's cool about communion is that communion is this regular reminder of the humility of someone who didn't need to be humble, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't need to be humble. I want to read something as we as we go into communion this morning, because I think this is a, a beautiful picture of what we do when we participate in communion. Paul writes this in Philippians. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest thing that Jesus did was he humbled himself. That is the foundational call to us as his people. Jesus humbled himself and then the rest of it is, therefore, God has highly exalted him, has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus was with his disciples, essentially, he took that bread. He said, This broken bread is a symbol of my embracing humility on your behalf. Jesus humbled himself before his disciples by taking on the cross. And that was evidence of his humility before his father. So Jesus says to his disciples, when you take and eat this bread, remember my broken body, remember my sacrifice remember my humility. Let's take the bread together. And then he took the cup. Again, symbolic of his shed blood, his ultimate act of humility. But because of that, in response to that, it says God exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that he is Lord. You know how Jesus got that name? Through humility. So he took the cup and he said, when you drink of this cup, remember my shed blood, that you can live a life of humility, knowing that God will take care of you and lift you up. Let's take the cup together. As we close in prayer, I I want to encourage you that chances are really good that somewhere in your life, maybe this past week, in my life, I have done a, maybe you've done a poor job of proving that you are humbled before God. And so don't let today pass, don't let the sun go down if you need to go to someone in humility and make something right. Maybe it's a comment, maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's something you've done, maybe it's something you've harbored. But understand that harboring that doesn't hurt them it just separates you from God. (laughs) It creates a distance. And that is the pathway to inexpressible joy and being raised up in the way God wants to raise us up, to exalt us as we do what he's asked us to do and we trust him with what he said he will do. So let's pray. Father, we come before you today. God, there's, I feel like there's a lot of things that your spirit could be highlighting in our lives, both individual and corporately. Father, I, I pray that none of us would walk away without any kind of action. God, the difference between hearing and doing, God, is so huge. So Father, so I pray that this morning we would do your word, the word that you've given to us, that we've heard, that your spirit has has reinforced and underlined and highlighted. And that God, you would help us to be a people who you love to exalt. Because we can say that we are truly a humble people of God. God, that we would welcome what oftentimes we see the insurgency of your spirit in our lives. Trusting that you will be faithful. And God, I pray for those who maybe are even struggling this morning. Struggling with whatever they're struggling with, it whether it's their flesh or pain, or disappointment. God, even in those things, we are called to humble ourselves, seek you first, and allow you to hold us and lift us up. So God, I thank you for your love, for your faithfulness, for your compassion, for your grace, your goodness to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.